Hello and welcome to So Now What with Gates Cambridge, a podcast tackling some of the world's wicked problems with those who are dedicated to doing something about them. I'm Catherine Galloway and my guests, as always, are Gates Cambridge scholars working to make an impact in the lives of others. This February, the first of the 2025 cohort of scholars from around the world will receive the life-changing news that they too are on their way to a Cambridge education. But that's just the start of the story. The scholarship is also a commitment to lifelong learning and to making a difference with that knowledge. A perfect moment then to ask, what is education for? Joining me on Zoom today, I'm delighted to welcome two members of the Gates Cambridge class of 2009, Tabo Nsibi, speaking from Pretoria in South Africa, and Tara Westover, who's in New York in the United States. Also on Zoom, but joining us from the whole other world that is the University of Oxford, a warm welcome to Alia Khalid, a Gates Cambridge scholar from 2015. Thank you all so very much for joining me. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for your willingness too to put the topic of education itself to the test with me today. All of you I know believe that it is and must be something more than essays, exams and qualifications. Aaliyah, your academic research uh, looks at family and wider community contexts for education and aspiration, especially in the Global South. Tarbo, you were the youngest university dean in South Africa and are now the newly promoted Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Teaching and Learning at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. You're working for an education system with social justice and empowerment at its heart. And Tara, your best-selling memoir, Educated, was a love letter to learning itself, exploring both the value and the cost of knowledge, and what happens when you decide against all odds to think for yourself. All three of you, I know, have fought like lions for the education you have received, and we'll explore what that fight taught you personally about what education is for a little later on. But first, I'd love you to tell me one thing that you're bringing to the table today that's going to help us get started. Tara, why don't we start with you? Well, as you might <clears throat> hear from my voice, I'm, I'm bringing a COVID infection. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Uh, so I got, I tested positive for COVID yesterday and um, uh, I have a little bit of a fever, but otherwise I'm all right. But I've, it's, it has made me think a bit about the costs of, you know, we're just now hearing from researchers about what the pandemic has cost us in terms of learning. And especially, I think, among disadvantaged communities. I think Aaliyah knows a lot about this, and I'm really looking forward to hearing her talk about it. So I've brought a question and an illness. Well, and that's the beauty of podcasting and radio, Tara, that we're all completely fine with the fact that you are spluttering over your computer, but I'm sorry that you're unwell. Tabo, what have you brought to the table today? Well, I think I've brought in the idea of opportunity. I think I'm incredibly grateful um, that individuals um, were able to identify potential in me. Um, and I feel very privileged and lucky um, to be here today knowing very well that if I had not been given the opportunity that I had been given, I would not be here um, in this August um, occasion. So a sense of gratitude and also the importance that education is first spotting the potential then, rather than stuffing everything in. Uh, and Aaliyah, uh, what have you br brought to, to our conversation today? So what I bring to the table is a call for us to reflect on our own practices um, and try to learn from communities that we wish to serve. 
Um, the reason why I say this is because I work in the field of comparative and international education, and we researchers, practitioners, policy makers seek to solve the world's, uh, world's what we call wicked problems through education. And as we seek to kind of solve these problems, we bring our own understanding of the issues, um, which translates into our own versions of the solutions as well. So in that sense, those are the solutions that we try to impose as a global community onto other communities worldwide. So I bring to the table this uh, sort of idea of reflecting on our own practices and truly trying to learn the way that, you know, communities actually do education in the best way possible. Well, that's fascinating. Well, uh, this idea of self-reflection, I know, is also very important to Tara and to Tabo. This idea that you find yourself, the knowing and the growing seem to come together and that, and that it is a long journey, that we keep reevaluating, we keep looking at ourselves and becoming uh, somebody different through our education and the education we offer to others. Um, I've brought the fact that strikes me the most about education, and, and that's the well-cited statistic from UNICEF, which is a child whose mother can read is 50% more likely to survive past the age of five. With everything else being equal, 50% more likely to survive if your mother can read. Now, Aliyah, I know your work on gender, and in particular, mothers and daughters and their aspirations and experiences of education is absolutely key to what you have done. Can you expand a little bit on that, on what education is for in the female context? Coming back to the idea of narratives and stories and um, Adichie's, you know, idea of one unified story and multiple stories is really appealing to me. Um, and I want to stick to that aspect of story and to talk about a little bit about, you know, 2015 when I arrived in Cambridge to do my PhD and I was really excited and I am from one of the parts that, you know, normally people would assume as more um, sort of conservative in Pakistan. We're just bordering uh, Afghanistan, the Northwest. And I remember when I came in, um, people, colleagues, lovely colleagues, were very keen to learn about me, to understand my story as well. And I was very keen to talk because I had stories to tell. When I talked to them about my issues, the way that I spoke about them, I thought I spoke as a conqueror. But the image that I saw reflected back was that of, you know, maximum the sort of survivor, maybe. And there was a confusion there because I thought that is not how I think I have lived, you know, that story. So my whole journey, academic journey kind of begins from there, this confusion, how, you know, particular women from particular parts of the world um, are perceived in this, in this kind of field altogether. Now, I feel that um, what education is for today is for us to educate ourselves to, through these women and communities. The reason why I say this is because it's a very difficult time. We've got conflict, we've got violence, we've got different sorts of crises happening. And we don't have the luxury to be uh, you know, passive in our desire to learn from communities. We have to be very fiercely active because simplified political narratives are not useful anymore. And if we really want to change the world through education, what we need to do is we need to listen really and be open. And I think those alternate stories about women, about gender, about stories of, you know, fighting and surviving need to come out and need to be, you know, told by the people who live within conditions, because there's no vision of a better world 
without the people um, having a front seat in the conversations that we're having today. Tara, well, as Aliyah was speaking, I was thinking of a moment that you relate in Educated, um, a moment when you first read John Stuart Mill, and there was a line that just absolutely leapt out at you as you were sitting there in Cambridge, having fought uh, for your education, not having gone to any kind of school, formal schooling until you were 16. And John Stuart Mill said, of the nature of women, nothing final can be known. And you write, blood rushed to my brain. I felt an animating surge of adrenaline, of possibility, of a frontier being pushed outward. And I wondered if you could expand a little bit on, on what it means to be truly educated for you. Well, what I remember specifically about that passage was it was a frontier of knowledge, but it was also a frontier of ignorance, really, uh, and stated ignorance, which I really appreciated. Because I think what was difficult about the knowledge I had gained about gender, women, or um, norms, what was expected of me, the life I, I could aspire to, wasn't so much ignorance. That wasn't the problem. It was I was told a lot of things quite, quite confidently without without them necessarily being true. So what I appreciated about John Stuart Mill wasn't his certainty, but his doubt, actually, that he just said, we don't know anything about this, and anybody who thinks they do is lying. You know, And that was amazing to me, because I thought, oh, there's all these things I, I'd been told about women are natural nurturers, and they're really supposed to be in the home, and this is like decreed by God. And, and here was John Stuart Mill saying, I mean, this is just a mystery, we don't know. And there was something very uh, freeing. And also, it's just a funny line of the nature of women. It's a subject in which nothing final can be known. It's just funny. But, uh, but also, I thought, freeing to say, I don't know what you are. And no, anyone who tells you what you are doesn't know. So why would you believe them? And I, I hadn't really found that before. The, the courage to just say, we don't know. We don't know the answer. Go find it for yourself because we don't know for you. So education then should be, should be for asking the big questions that we don't know as much as teaching the facts and figures that we do. And that's making me turn to you, Tarbo, because in the interviews I've read uh, with you, your view of what education is actually for is a deeply emotional one, very much like Aaliyah and Tara are speaking about it. You know, I'm seeing words in your interviews like joy and trust and support. And crucially, you're also underlining that it's an education that everyone can access, but not necessarily through an institutional means. You know, some of the things you've set up include, uh, you know, a debating club or a leadership program or even a hockey game. And they're all things that you've done to allow people to access that education, even if they don't yet know what they don't know. And I wondered if you could expand on the idea of that education isn't an institution. That's what it's not. I, I mean, I come from a context where 52% um, uh, of young people are unemployed, um, uh, where we have incredible inequalities um, as a result of apartheid, and of course, um, that have been perpetuated post-apartheid. Um, and so you come to a, a context where um, a, a lot of hope has been lost amongst young people. And one of the ways and means in which um, I think we as educationists need to respond is to think through how we can restore hope um, in education. And, and, and so that's what my last a project has been about. Um, I don't view education as a technical exercise of leading towards exclusively sort of this economic empowerment, but more so that it is a project of social justice um, that we need to at the very core of what we are doing as educationists, as individuals who are implicated in the education process, is to ask ourselves 
how do we transform society so that it becomes better, not just for ourselves, but for generations to come? Um, and what does that mean then for a child that does not have this notion of being truly educated? Because um, having access to education alone, just being able to go to a school and be tested and write an examination doesn't really mean that you have been truly educated. And for the majority of the uh, kids in our society, at least in South Africa, and I know in the global south, um, we, we, we really have a situation where we are promulgating this notion of educational access, but the quality of what we have on offer the type of resourcing that we have at our disposal um, becomes uh, a, a main and a critical issue that we need to respond to. Uh, not because it's of our own making, but because of the ways in which the structure, the society, the system is designed. And so my approach to education has been about pushing the boundaries, getting more people to think through what does it mean to push through the glass ceiling and what does this glass ceiling look like? What does it mean to have more voices that look like me around the table? I'm not comfortable with the idea of just having a person like me being the only person around a table, but to ask, how do I bring more voices so that we are able to have this education that is truly emancipatory and that can actually offer opportunities for the future? So education as empowerment, and I know, Aaliyah, you use the word agency a lot, um, and Tara, you use literally the word educator to be truly educated. That is what that means. but. If we think about education as empowerment, how does that help us then to allocate those education budgets that you mentioned, Tabo, the resources that are in short supply in a more impactful way? If we stop thinking about facts and figures and we start thinking about something that might serve the people and include everybody. I, want, I wanted to make reference to something that you said, which I thought was actually quite profound earlier uh, in relation to the stories of the communities, the stories of women. And I believe very often, um, the stories of the South are very randomly told. Um, and very often when we talk about this, this budgeting, the provisioning, um, it is about issues of privilege and those who have and those who have not. And I think that um, if, if we are truly going to have honest conversations around education, we need to ask questions around who has these resources, what are they being used for, and how do they get um, fairly distributed in society in ways that are going to be empowering for those individuals that historically have not been able to have access to those resources. My, I think that the point of uh, the beginning should be in us de, um, deconstructing the idea of, you know, one thing as a monolith. So the global South as being one, uh, the oppressed as being one. And only after that we've dismantled this idea do we start looking at the diversity and the beauty and the richness of that difference. And so accepting difference as beautiful and necessary and essential in today's world is actually really important. We need to say that our own intellectual humility is needed here. We need to say that we don't know. We don't know enough. So we need to seek out and try to learn from others. But, you know, this concept about resources, Catherine, it just reminded me of I was doing some field work in Pakistan in some of the communities hit by floods. Um, and there was a village that I visited and I was looking at girls' education there. Um, so the, the people had lost their houses and the school buildings were dilapidated. And those were the moments where I saw, as I, I, I spoke to the community, that teachers 
who were calling up uh, the students and asking if they were okay. So they, there wasn't any education happening, but there was somebody calling this, them up and asking about them. That increased their love for that school, for education and what it means. There were teachers who were inviting students in their, in, in their homes, um, you know, just to ask about how they're doing, just to be, you know, caring, just to care for them, just to love them. School is much more than reading and, uh, and, and writing. I have gone to villages where people have said, you know, my daughter goes to school, no teacher comes there. But the girl says, I'm transformed because I realize uh, playing with my friends that I have a lovely voice. So now everybody comes to me and I sing for them. And that had changed her. And the mother could actually say, you know, she she wouldn't even talk earlier. Now she's doing this. Now, the reason why I'm I'm getting to this is because I went there and I saw this beautiful white tent set up by UNESCO. Um, and as, as I entered the tent, it was supposed to be a school. It was completely new. It was never used. It had reached those communities, very hard communities to reach, but it wasn't used. So had I gone into that setup and said, oh, the community isn't coming, you know, there are things happening, but something very beautiful, but very different was happening in different ways. The people had been seeing these floods since quite a few years now. So they knew what could be done to actually improve the situation. For example, um, you know, giving a certification to teachers to actually start up schools in their homes. Um, they were higher grounds where there were, um, you know, government structures in place, those, those could be used as schools. So they listed all the solutions of how things could actually be done, how education could actually be made possible without spending extra on anything. So this question about resources and this this question about you know education it's it's quite complicated and it's beautiful because of the complexity. I had one thought about I think it's worth mentioning technology in this because I think for a lot of people they think oh maybe not everyone can get access to, to kind of Harvard education or a, you know, stellar education, but now we can put everything online and so everybody can. And there's something very true and very exciting about that. You know, if you want to go on to YouTube and you have access to a computer or a phone, you can watch a, a great mathematical mind, like teach you algebra or something, which is like truly amazing. Um, but, it, you know, it cuts two directions because I think the, I think we don't want to remove that human aspect too much that Aaliyah was talking about. Like part of an education is having a teacher who knows you and cares about you and a community that can point out to you what your strengths are. And I worry a little bit when we overemphasize what technology can do for inequality in education that we might veer into a world where we accept education for, you know, less advantaged people that is just totally qualitatively, not just quantitatively different. They have fewer resources, but it's just a completely different experience, you know, only with a screen and um, without kind of making sure that that human community side is is present, which I do think more privileged kids will always have. Um, and so I, I just think it's worth thinking about technology. What can it solve and what can't it solve? And uh, just being a little bit realistic about it. If I could just take you into your own stories for a minute, you will three children growing up on three different continents, all of you, and at one point or another, all of your educational journeys could have stopped dead or indeed never got started. Um, Aliyah, you were growing up in Pakistan on the Afghan border with, with the Taliban swirling around. Uh, Tarbo, you grew up until the age of 10 under apartheid in a township in KwaZulu-Natal and 
Tara, there you were in rural Idaho in a Mormon community and your parents didn't agree with sending children to school, so you had no formal education. And this is a difficult question, but what was one teachable moment from your own growing up that made you feel, oh goodness, I know what education is for and I know why I want it so badly? I can start with with a moment that's that's perhaps my motivation for even doing a PhD. Um, I have been fortunate. Yes, there have been events in my life, um, and my life has had a very like crazy kind of journey. But I've also had a lot of support from my family and friends. Uh, but I also come from a part of the world where, at the time of war on terror, we used to have suicide uh, bombings every day, three, four attacks minimum in a day. Uh, but one defining moment for me, actually, which led me to my PhD, was this um, um, this event, which is called the Peshawar School Massacre. So in 2014, um, so sort of Taliban took over a school and more than 400 or so children were actually brutally slaughtered. And it was a day-long event. And um, the students who went there, so the families who used to send their children there, a lot of them were living in my community, in my hometown. So when this event happened, lots of families lost multiple children in one household, actually. And I remember the government had formed like white lines, which if you walked on them, you would lead, they would lead you to a house that had lost children. So for the coming one week, we just walked on those lines and we entered houses and we cried with them and we looked at people. And whenever I saw like mothers sitting at the head of the coffins of one child, two children crying, and then within um, within a week or so, we saw those mothers coming back and saying, you know, we will send our children to school. This is what Taliban want. They don't want them to go to school. Uh, we won't let them win. We are going to make this happen. And a lot of mothers sent their children back to the same school when it was uh, up and going on. So... I guess my uh, turning point was this question, what motivates you to trust education so much that you can send your children back to um, schools where this horrific event has happened? And that's the dedication, the first page of my PhD. So, you know, what, what is it about education? What does it give you um, that it makes you? And I've gone into many directions and found many answers, which are which have made me reflect on my own kind of thinking and practices. But I think that was the key defining moment. And I owe everything to those mothers, I think. That's incredibly moving. Thank you for sharing that, Aliyah. Tabo, was there some moment where you thought, goodness, this could go both ways and I need to reset myself? I want to, I don't want to mention one. If you allow me, Catherine, if I can mention two, because I, I keep you may. on <laughs> <laughs> two moments. Um, I grew up, as you pointed out, um, uh, in the township in the early years of my upbringing. Um, and then in 1994, when apartheid collapsed, my family moved to the town of Escort. Um, up until then, you know, people who were black were not allowed to uh, buy houses in the, in, you know, in white suburbia. Um, and uh, in grade eight, my parents made a decision to move me from a township school to a, um, a, a former, what we call a formal school, which is largely a white school um, under apartheid, a uh, white public school. Um, it is at that moment when I arrived in that school that I realized just what it means to be in an education system that can transform you uh, into a life that you'd never actually thought you could have. 
because it was then that I saw the access to, you know, the sporting codes. The teaching was completely different. It was it was a completely new world that I'd never had exposure to. Um, so so new uh, was this world that I actually failed my grade eight um, because I, I I just could not reconcile the type of education that I'd had in the township school and and the education that I was receiving in that school. And it was precisely because of that experience that I started doing the work that we were citing earlier around coaching, debating in townships, doing sports, hockey, and other sports that I had not had access to when I was in a township school. And then I decided that, let me do this. Let me, do, let me bring back this type of education that I was getting in this space, which I uh, did not have, but which a number of my peers and friends we're still not getting. So in eighth, ninth, tenth grade, I was already doing this work. But another defining moment was when I moved from high school into university. And it was another moment of transition for me because, again, um, uh, I had gone from township to a, a formerly white school. And now I had moved into a fully integrated university space that had white professors that did not buy into the narrative that I had been taught at school. Um, which which was a, some form of cognitive, cognitive dissonance for me because I, I, I in many ways, had tried to replicate uh, what I thought at that stage was, you know, um, uh, the best way towards being successful. And at, at the university, I met an incredible man, Crispin Hampson. I always uh, uh, speak of him because he enabled me to unlearn the deep problematic knowledge and learning that I'd had about education and about myself. Um, and I was able to undo sort of the internalized racism that I'd had, the homophobia that I'd had, the sexism that I'd learned. Um, and, and I then made it my last mission to then try and pursue a social ju justice agenda on the basis of what had been taught to me um, by Crispin. And, and it, it's those two defining moments for me that I think that uh, have shaped the way in which I've, I've, I've actually gotten to view education here. Yeah. Goodness, that's absolutely extraordinary. And that notion of unlearning and that notion of cognitive dissonance, I know that's resonating with you, Tara, because your experience, even when at Cambridge, it wasn't a simple journey of I've gone from my family that wouldn't let me go to school and I'm now at Cambridge and I'm flying. It wasn't that. The whole educate the whole of educated is you actually really interrogating where do you belong? What does that mean? Is that was there a moment that stood out for you in that process? I mean, it's a funny question for me because when I went to college, I had absolutely no idea what college was. I'd never been in a classroom before. I, I went because I liked singing and my brother told me they would teach me to sing. And I was like, OK. <laughs> uh, so I didn't go with a lot of high ideals and I didn't leave with a lot of high ideals. But I, I did well and I liked history and I was really just following things I liked to do. I went there because I liked to sing. And when I was there, I learned I liked to read. And I especially liked to read history and philosophy. And some of my professors were like, go on this study abroad to Cambridge. And I went to Cambridge and then I liked it there. And somebody gave me enough money to stay. Thank you, Bill. And I did. And uh, it was all 
really about kind of following what I liked. And it's a funny thing, that thing of unlearning. I had to unlearn a lot of the same things that the Tabo had to unlearn. But I also, there's something you also have to unlearn at Cambridge, which is any human community, whether it's Gates scholars or universities themselves have beliefs, which may or may not be true, and expectations of you that are coming from the outside. And if I was if I was going to say there's one thing that Gates scholars in particular have to guard against, it is that almost by nature, anyone who wins a Gates scholarship is probably ambitious. Uh, a lot of type A people wander into that community, uh, and I'm one of them, so I don't know, no judgment. But I think that there's also a certain kind of cult of ambition that you can get in an environment like that. When I remember the year when I was graduating from Cambridge at PhD, I didn't want to be an academic. Everybody was going to work for McKinsey or Bain or BCG because it was the prestigious thing to do. And I think that's a kind of rigidity of thought, you know, like I am so successful. I can't do anything for education unless I'm like working right under Obama, you know, whatever it is, like a certain like you have to guard against your arrogance. But uh, there's like some value maybe in like going back to wherever it is you're from and, and working at the little school that you knew and actually gaining some true knowledge before you go apply to the presidential administration. You know, like not just thinking, well, I went to Harvard or I went to Yale and I'm top of my class and I need to start at the top. Like remembering that internal, like, what do I want to do and what am I good at? And actually not just wholly swallowing the, um, this narrative of like absolute success all the time. Uh, I had no intention of no knowledge whatsoever that anyone was going to read this book I was writing. That's not why I did it. Uh, and I had a couple of years. Eight million people yeah, it read it out. in the first two years, Tara, just to let you know. It worked out. But, you know, I think things tend to work out when you keep hold of that internal compass a little bit. As you're talking, Tara, I'm remembering so clearly the uh, definition of true education that was given by Martin Luther King, which is true education is intelligence plus character. We can't mythologize or deify facts and intelligence for intelligence's sake without what you've all shown in abundance in your life, which is the real grit and resilience and the real character to sort of say, this will work for me, this won't, I'm going to keep pushing here, I'm going to get up and try again there. And I think, Tabo, I know you're very interested in, in curriculum reform, and maybe that's what we build into the curriculum to make something that education really is fit for purpose for everybody. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that we've, we've been reflecting on here um, at, at the University of Cosmatel is how do we, um, we've got a, a big scourge around gender-based violence um, in South Africa. Um, and, and we've been thinking through how do we use education as a tool um, to undo some of the damage that that um, uh, you know that that is so inculcated in the society, and we we've come up with a what we hope is a curriculum innovation of making of creating a new course that is going to be compulsory for all uh, first year students, focus on the issue of difference of social justice, um, emancipation, thinking through how to um, build that agency. Um, and individuals to be able to take action um, in transforming not only themselves but their society. Because I think that you know, um, so much can be achieved through curriculum reform, and you know, at a at a broader level, uh, as opposed to sort of um, the individual. Uh, I think that often 
we use curriculum as a means for testing, for assessment, for. But I think that it, it, it has to go beyond that to, to, to allow us to think through some of those big um, social issues that are so pertinent in, in, in the transformation of, of our, our, our nations. But that brings me on really beautifully. I don't know if you did that deliberately to, the, to our end point, which, of course, as you know, we loop back to the title of this podcast and ask, so now what? What are we going to do next, collectively or individually, to try and shape what we're talking about into, into real terms in the real world? And, you know, if we look at ourselves, here we are in February 2024. There are six years left before 2030 when we're meant to be achieving the UN Sustainable Development Goal number four to achieve free, equitable and quality education for all boys and girls. That's a target. It's six years away. But what are we going to do now? It's it's not the what you learn at the end of your educational journey, but it's actually what you become, like Tabu said. So, um, and that becoming is actually beautiful. And um, yeah, in that, I just want to come to your point, Catherine. I think I'm waiting for the next version of SDGs. So the MDGs involved a very um, specific audience and people who selected the goals. The SDGs in expanded that by involving communities, involving other people. And I would wish that the next version involves even more people and analytical frameworks, which as a scholar is what I work on to look at analytically, what are the ways in which you can engage with communities so that you can bring back that richness to improve practices worldwide. Because in order to reach any education goal, the resources we have will never suffice. So what you need to do is you need to be smart you need to learn from the experts, which are the communities, but also practically speaking for scholars and researchers, how do we develop those analytical instruments and tools with the help of which we can actually do this? So for that would be um, you know, kind of my aim for the post-2030 kind of goals. But I think we're getting there. I think we're getting better. Note of optimism <laughs> there, Alia. Thank you very much for that. What about you, Tabo? What's next on the slate for you? So you, you asked us what we bring on the table as a first question, and I said to you that I want to bring opportunity, and I want to look back to opportunity once more. Because I think that um, very often uh, we, of, we forget the type of impact that we can individually make in transforming other people's lives for the better. And I think that um, if I think about young people um, and I think about the SGD, SGDs and I think about sort of the, the issues of empowerment, the agency that young people have, very often agency alone without an individual recognizing the type of potential that you have and giving you the opportunity and support to succeed is an agency that operates um, in vain in a way. And so my appeal today is to anyone who's listening here today to say that um, you individually can have an impact um, uh, on the improvement of lives in ways that you would not imagine. Um, it's, it doesn't have to be something big. It can be you seeing that one young person that is out there that is in need of support and going through and supporting them and, and, and finding ways in which you can you know, uh, uh, better or improve their lives. Uh, it could be a contribution in a charity of some sort that is interested in the work that you are doing. It, it's, it's small things um, that have profound impacts or influence on individuals' lives. And I think that I'm appealing to each and everyone who's listening today to do something and to act it's that do small things with great love, isn't it? It's Absolutely. That, exactly. What about you, Tara? 
Uh, I agree completely with Tabo. I think um, all the policies in the world uh, that we could put in place, the grants, the funds, the scholarships, the universities we could build, won't matter if there's not a ladder or a pipeline to get people there. And almost always it's um, someone at every juncture in my own story, it was someone in my life who told me about something, you know, it was very wonderful that Bill Gates gave all this money and created this program, but I didn't know anything about Bill Gates or Cambridge uh, until one of my professors sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, have you heard about this? Maybe you should apply for this. And um, I think you need those conduits and everybody, uh, you know, all of us here are occupying a relatively privileged space now, wherever we started. And probably most people listening as well. And there are people in your life, you might have to think a minute about who they are, who aren't, you know, that you see, that you encounter. Maybe it's the person who delivered your dinner last night or their kid, or, uh, you know, there are people in your sphere of influence that actually very small things, like, you know, not like you have to give up every evening, but very small things can make a, a pretty big difference, actually. And the fact that they know you or see you will make you so much more powerful in their in their life and able to help than, um, than, than a bureaucrat or, or someone far away they've never heard of and will never meet. So I, I think it's that thing of like looking around in your own world and, and, and thinking who you could say a few things to, a few encouraging things uh, and, and just be be there. I totally agree with that. And, and I think you all illustrate that in absolute spades. So thank you very much indeed. That has to be it for this episode, very reluctantly. But Alia Khalid, Senior Lecturer of Comparative and International Education at the University of Oxford. Tabu Sibi, Deputy Vice-Chancellor for Teaching and Learning at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. And Tara Westover, award-winning memoirist and historian currently based in the United States. It's been an absolute privilege and a true delight to talk to you all uh, today. My thanks too to producers Mandy Garner from Gates Cambridge and Nick Saffel from the Central Communications Office at the University of Cambridge. And of course, thanks to all of you for listening. We're brand new, so do let us know what you think. I'm Catherine Galloway and this was So Now What with Gates Cambridge. Join us again next time for another wicked problem dissected by those determined to do something about it. Thank you.